everybody welcome to don't quit your day job or maybe quit your day job if you think you're going to be a big star my name is paul and i am here with uh my good friend mark hey paul hey everybody <laughs> mark is as always living the life of luxury in la um oh yeah <laughs> in one of his 17 homes that he owns in the LA area, just moving from house to house. He doesn't like to clean, so he just goes to a different house. Is that is that pretty accurate, Mark? Oh, that's very, I mean, come on. Don't every musician, that's how they work, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean. <laughs> uh, so uh, I want to I kick off this, this episode by saying, in the early 2000s, I lived in Germany. And I was playing music, uh, working for, for a company in Germany. And I decided, you know what? I haven't played a line six in a while. I want something easy because my amps kept breaking. So I thought, hey, I'll get a line six. It probably sounds good enough for punk rock, which most things do. Um, and so it was, I think it was the line six spider three series at the time. Yeah. And, um, I went online and I thought, Hey, I want to listen to some clips and, and check this out. And I go online and I pull up a video and lo and behold, it's Mark Tremalgia demoing a line six amp. So what, what the hell, what happened there, Mark? <laughs> I don't, I do not associate you with digital stuff at all. No, but one of my good friends uh, worked at Line 6 and liked my plan and, uh, you know, ran it past me if I would be interested in doing demos coming in, you know, once a week and just setting up a video and having me run through different presets and different sounds and demoing kind of different styles because the amp is super versatile. I mean, you can really go from a surf sound to a metal sound to a country sound to a gospel sound, you know? And so we would, we would try to, to mimic all that. And he knew that I was a rock player by trade, but I, I could play a little jazz. I could play a little country. I could play, you know, so, so that, that's what really like, help me secure that kind of gig and I actually still have two two spiders back here <laughs> so did so were, did you work for line six at the time did you get it like were you employed by them or was this like freelancing stuff this was freelancing stuff but i was a, a constant hire for their video demos basically and that, and that was that was kind of my title i would go in and and just you know whether it was the pod or a new amp or a modeling idea or anything i would go in and they would you know i would i would be sort of a beta tester and uh and a promoter is kind of the best way to to describe it i think so we hadn't seen each other for for many many years at this point so this was early 2000s um, and then I contacted you and I said, Hey, I just saw you, uh, playing guitar through, a, through a line six. And, and then we kind of rekindled our friendship, at least remotely, because again, I was still in Germany yeah. at that point. And then when I, right. when I came back, uh, to the U S I made a trip out to LA and we drove around and you said, and there's this thing and there's that thing. And there's this oh thing. Oh my God, that was so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> and we went to that dive bar and drank, uh, gin gimlets in the afternoon. That's right. I, I also remember that. that. And then, and then I started taking lessons and now we kind of talk every week. So it's crazy how all of this stuff just sort of works out, you know? Well, I feel like I'm sort of responsible for your first guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Well, I did buy my first guitar from you. You are definitely responsible. It was a Kramer striker in dark blue. I, as I recall, I miss it. I miss it. I wish I still had it. <laughs> yeah. So I subsequently sold it. I think I sold it so that I could buy my 
Ibanez RG540 series, which was the precursor to the Joe Satriani series. So that was the first like awesome guitar I ever bought with my my own money. Um, and that was like mid 80s, maybe mm. it was early eight. No, it was early 90s. I bought that guitar because I bought the guitar from oh. you. My first guitar, like you were still in Connecticut, probably still in high school, actually. Yeah, yeah. So I graduated in 87 and then moved to L.A. after that. So. so when you moved out to L.A., did you so what did you bring for gear with you again? You know, go back to the first podcast and you can hear about Mark's. Uh, trek out to LA in the van. It was the whole band. What did you bring for, for gear? What did you have with you? I had a Marshall stack that uh, pretty much everybody had in the eighties that you had to have. Um, you had to have a stack. It's just the way was it was. Was that for looks or for sound or, or both? Yes. <laughs> for, both. for both. They had to look cool. You know, you can't play the Roxy and have like a little combo amp, you know, you got to have a stack up there. So it looked cool for that, but it was also a pretty cool sounding. It was like one of those, uh, anniversary series heads. Then it just had really it had a pretty nice sound to it. And, uh, I had, uh, a BC rich mockingbird, uh, wow, and very my, metal, very metal, very metal. And then I had a Charvel and, uh, a 65 Strat and, uh, Subsequently, the Strat was stolen from me, and uh, wow. the other two good. Well, the other the BC Rich I ended up pawning at some point, and I also had a big old pedal board. I had a bunch of Boss pedals. I was really into like you know the EQ, the Flanger Phaser Delay. You know, I had a nice little pedal board. Uh, always had an MXR Distortion Plus back then because Randy had one, and I had to have one if Rhodes had one. So, <laughs> so when you were hitting the front of your amp, were you? basically just getting all your gain from the pedal or were you were you so loud that you were getting because it was probably not a master volume amp at the time right yeah no i was i was using a bit of both okay i was using the amp for like a main rhythmic sound and then i'd step on the pedal or the eq to get the boost for a solo okay um but sometimes if a song was heavier i would just put the distortion on and maybe roll my guitar volume back a touch um and uh yeah I kind of used, you know, I mean, I'm always experimenting. So it's like the pedal could work with the amp. It always, I find it just depends so much on where and what, you know, like if I was in the rehearsal room, which was our bedroom at that point, you know, I, I would actually keep the amp fairly low and I would use the distortion on the pedal and right. make that so I didn't have to be, you know, through the roof loud. But then you go to like the Roxy and you set up and you can put your amp pretty loud. So the amp would be loud. And if I hit the pedal, it would just be mushy. You know, I didn't even mm-hmm. need it. So then I would just not even use that pedal, even though it was on my board. And I'd use the EQ for the boost because, you know, the EQ is, is probably the industry secret weapon. I mean, every great guitar player, pretty much has a weapon of that eq on their board because it gives you like an 8 db boost and you can cut the frequency so you want to make sure the mids are cutting through and the highs are jumping out and everything and you can do that with a little you know like eight band six band eq so i always always had one of those so i currently have an eq pedal i have a chase bliss um condor on my board so does that make me a professional guitar player because i do think that having pedals that's the thought right it makes you a better guitar player right (laughs) Uh, do you still have any of that gear i know i think you still have the charvel right I still have the Charvel. That's it. That's all that survived. Uh, the the amps all went because the next band when I joined Doc's House Mob, that was all you know combo amps, and we were using like you know Fender Devils, Deluxes, and uh, 
the, the Vibra King was actually turned into like one of my main amps too. And so I was like, hey, I don't need these Marshalls. I'm not going to play any more heavy metal. So I sell them. And then the next thing happens where, well, well I need a Marshall again. <laughs> so did you go pretty much clean then when you went to Doc's House Mob? Yeah. Yeah. And I had a Boss OD pedal, which I still have. Um, and that was my, like, if I had solos or anything like that to get up over the horns and the scratcher and all that stuff, I would just stomp on that and it would add a little bottom grit and just kind of boost my, my tone up a little. So, and what was your main, I know you're primarily a Les Paul guy, but you play an SG and you play a bunch of other stuff, but for Doc's house mob, were you still playing the Les Paul? I was playing the yellow Strat that's sitting right over there. Okay. And then uh, we got, I was endorsed by uh, Washburn. Oh. And Washburn gave me like four tellies, which <laughs> I subsequently sold them all. But uh, <laughs> I was playing this black telly for a long time. So I, I'd go back and forth between my yellow Strat and the black telly. So let's explain to everyone what it means to be endorsed. Does it mean they're giving you gear and money or just gear or just money or what's happening there? So at least for you back back then. Uh, it can be any of, of that. You know, it depends on your level. Like, you know, if, if I was touring arenas, they'd probably pay me and give me gear. Um, I was not. <laughs> I was lucky to be playing like theaters and things like that. So it was good. So they would come to rehearsal and say, you know, come to our warehouse. We'll throw you a couple of guitars. Cool. So you go over there and they give you some. And basically, if you don't like it, you kind of put it on a stand on stage, maybe play it on the last song, you know, that kind of thing. Because, you know, the Washburn stuff was okay. But, you know, the fact I was getting free guitars, I wasn't really going to pass that stuff up. Especially Nuno, Nuno played and I think still plays Washburns. He does, yeah, yeah. They no, they do make some decent guitars. I mean, Derek Trucks was endorsed by Washburn. They had a, like a Derek Trucks model back when he was still super young, and and I actually really liked it. the of the four tellies I had. I had a black one, and that was the one that I mainly played a lot. And I really, I actually traded it for a Les Paul. That's how nice that guitar was. I, I mean, I threw some money in there too, but I traded it for a Black Beauty Les Paul that I ended up losing too. So <laughs> I've been through more guitars than you can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> I can kind of imagine because I'm nowhere near what you've experienced, but I've played a lot for a long time and I've been through, I don't know, 50 or 60 guitars. I've been through a lot of guitars. Right. I know. And I think back to some of the guitars I've had Gretsch's and like some really (laughs) cool like Duesenberg's and things. And I'm like, God, I regret getting rid of stuff or moving through stuff so quickly being like, ah, spur of the moment. I don't need this, you know? (laughs) Okay, so now it's mid '90s, and you're so what happened? What was the end of Doc's House Mob? You had gotten signed, or were signed, and you were about to conquer the world, and then what happened? That's where, we, yeah, I think that's where we were at on the last podcast. So basically, um, we got our record deal through Dick Clark's Battle of the Bands. We were with Mercury Records, and. Uh, Basically, the band was a 13-piece band, and how bands that size worked is the record label normally signs the core, meaning, you know, bass, guitar, drums, vocal, and then everybody else is part of the payroll. So, you know, you're responsible for that. We can't, they can't technically sign all 13 members. And Doc was a, a family guy, you know, he thought of Doc's House Mob as a family band, so he basically pushed for the whole band to be signed to a record deal. 
and they just wouldn't do it. So we went in, we actually, they did, you know, let us do the demos for the record. So we cut five songs at A&M Studios where they did We Are the World and all that stuff. And how we long, were in there for How about, long did it take? To, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. How long we were there for take? about a week, a week and a half. Okay. And uh, it was it was super fun, and the stuff sounded great. And then basically, like two weeks after it was done, Doc informed us that the label refuses to budge on the deal, and they're not going to sign us at all now because Doc wouldn't give in to the the just the core band being signed. He's like, it's all or nothing, and that was kind of that attitude, you know, where if you get signed, you're a rock star back in the day. And so that was the thing he wanted everybody signed. So uh, the band. Um, we were kind of on our own at that point. So we had booked some shows and we booked this big benefit downtown. God, there was probably like 10,000 people there. And the headliner was this band called Bang Tango. And we were the support slot. So there was like 15 bands, then us, and then Bang Tango. And, uh, the Bang Tango guys like stood on the side of the stage with their jaws on the ground while we were playing. Cause I mean, it was a pretty powerful band. It was, you know, the drummer was amazing. The bass player went on to play with like Jodeci and all these like big R and B bands. And he was a monster from church, church bass player, you know, he could yeah. do anything and harmonies singing and horns. And so everybody was pretty floored by the whole band. And I struck up a friendship with the singer who said, Hey man, you know, I know you're busy with Doc's house mom, but you want to do like a side funk band called the Vagabonds. He's like, I've done this before and it would be super fun. And we'll play every Tuesday night. We'll make some dough and it'll be a great thing. And so I ended up doing more and more of that, and Doc's House Mob slowed down and slowed down because once we lost the record deal, people were like, no one really wanted to touch us after that because they were like, oh, everybody, you know, we're not going to deal with that. That's just too much. You so, know? so at this point in in your career as a, as a musician, you'd moved out to L.A., and you've gotten close now twice, right? You've gotten twice. like a record deal dangled and then pulled away twice. Yep. <laughs> twice twice and i mean actually you know did demos went to the american music awards you know went into mercury's offices went to a&m to recall like feeling like you know it's right there it is like you know i didn't jump the gun like i did when i was you know 20 and look at houses and stuff i wasn't that <laughs> stupid anymore but i was still pretty excited like hey stevie wonder talked to us you know we're recording this thing good things are going to happen and then it just that move by doc unfortunately really soured us in the in the in the business in the industry right. side of it no one really wanted to touch us because doc was so adamant that it's all or nothing so all did you us. talk to other guys in the band like were you bummed about that was there any talk in the band like he should do it or no he's doing the right thing or you know what's the inner band dynamic at that point inner band dynamics was that he is doing the right thing because doc thought of us as a big family you know i mean we were we were multiracial. That was the thing. It was, we were multi-gender. Everything about it was like a family and he wanted to keep it like this, you know, a family and misfits. Unity was our big song that we'd end. And that's when we'd always have, you know, whatever quote unquote rock star was in the crowd from Vince Neil to Ray Gillen to Chad Smith, they would come up and sit in on that song. That was, that was unity. And like, so Doc and, and our thought was we're doing the right thing. You know, somebody's going to see how great this band is because, I mean, honestly, every time we played, it's like it's fun when you play in a band and people are watching you. But what's neat is when you play in a band and then people are watching, but then it gets more packed and more packed. And you're like, yeah. as the music goes on, it's getting like more exciting. You know, it's not like people are like making for the exit as you're playing more and more. They're actually coming more to the stage and like freaking out. So we knew we had something special. One time I played in Canton, Ohio on a Doping the Void tour at the Carriage House in Canton, Ohio, and it was us, 
the sound guy, the person at the bar, the other band, three three guys, and two people <laughs> came into the show. So, and we did our thing because because it's fun to play no matter what. But it's that's Absolutely. like that's that's life on the road when no one knows a German punk band. You know, that's just kind of the way it goes. And so, you were you weren't in docs when it was like small time, right? You had joined Docs when when it was already starting to get a little bit bigger. Is that right? Docs was, I would, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was like growing as I joined the band. It okay. was pretty, pretty much people, there was a buzz about the band and they were my buddies. So I was going to see them whenever they were playing okay. to hang out right. because they were my friends. And then when I joined them, it was still like, you know, it was still going up the stairs basically. So like by the time I joined the band, it was, I was lucky. I got in at a really good time where it just took off. We got these really huge shows, you know, Prince's club and USC and battle of the bands. And it was like, Holy crap. <laughs> when it ended, did you know, okay, this is our last show or was it, uh, we only have one more show booked and then we'll see what happens after that. Did, so was it a clean we, end or was it sort of gradual? The band technically has never broken up. Okay. <laughs> technically, we've uh, we actually we've done some reunions even in the two thousands, you know. Uh, so we we've actually gotten back together and done a few like one off shows here and there. But yeah, it was kind of like doc docking the frustration of not being able to get another record deal and people not taking him too serious because of the whole mm -hmm. like I want the whole band, I want the whole band. Right. So that kind of screwed us in a way, and so. It, it made gigs slow up and things slowed up and I started getting busy with this and other guys started getting busy with other projects. A drummer joined a band called, um, I can't remember the name of the band, but they opened for the Sex Pistols. They got on when the Sex Pistols reunited and bit Reach Around. He joined Reach Around and like, so like everybody started doing stuff. The horn people, the three horn players all went to Guns N' Roses. So when you watch Use Your Illusion and they have oh, the horn wow. players on stage, those were our horn players. So it's like everybody like, went on to do stuff you know i remember bang tango in the late 80s early 90s only because i thought eh, it's another hair metal band and i'm sort of done with that now um right. so so that's my recollection and i don't know if it's it's accurate for the experience in the early 90s in la we already talked about i think in the last one we talked about sort of the end of of hair metal was did bang tango consider themselves to be hair metal or were they just trying to be a rock band or what was happening there so uh, do you want the story of how i ended up in bang tango yeah, yeah, I, you can tie all that together maybe yeah kind of relates to that so they did their first two records first one was pretty successful went gold and uh the second one didn't really do as much in america but it was pretty big in europe and so they were getting ready to do their third record and the guitar player was younger than all of them and he was just having like ego meltdowns like he thought he was you know eddie van halen and so they ended up mutually parting ways with him and they needed a guitar player pretty quick because they had a European tour coming up and they needed to finish up this third record, Love After Death. And so um, and, and, um, so the singer was like, hey, I, I know you're playing in a funk band, but can you play, you know, like hard rock and heavy metal? I'm like, yeah, sure. So he invited me down to a rehearsal and I met Mark Knight, the other guitar player, and he we hit it off right away. And uh, I guess I did good at the audition and they're like, dude, you want to go to Europe with us? You want to go to San Francisco, finish the record? And so all of a sudden I was in a signed band and, uh, you know, with label support, getting money every week and getting ready to go on the road and 
gear and roadies and all of a sudden it was like wow just like that i stepped into something that was like really cool now that being said the, the grunge thing was coming along and the bass player god god love him he's a little bit of like he's, he's on his own cloud he's kind of like his <laughs> like he's you know he's like sort of thinks about himself first so anyways he thought uh you know i i see the grunge movement coming and everything so he like totally cut his hair and started dressing different and you know bang tango was sort of on the cusp of that hair metal but they were also a little bit bikerish a little bit darker because i think billy idol and the cult were two big influences on bang tango they weren't influenced like i would say billy idol the cult Chili Peppers and Guns N' Roses were the four bands. If I was to put those together, that kind of made Bang Tango. That's sort of who Bang Tango sounded like. They didn't sound like Warrant. Okay. They didn't sound like Poison. They didn't sound like any of those. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's actually, a, that sort of vibe is the kind of music I think that sort of uh, stands the test of time. I, you play in Little Caesar now for anybody that doesn't know, and we'll, we'll eventually talk about that. But Little Caesar's the same sort of thing. They get unfairly lumped in with a lot of this other stuff, but Little Caesar is a cool rock and roll band more than anything right. else, you know. Right. And like I think our if, singer, you, if you talk about the four bands you just mentioned, you're just like, yeah, I mean, some of it is kind of poppy, and I don't love all of it, but it, you can't deny that it's like good rock and roll vibes all the way through. Right. Right, exactly, exactly. It's not like, you know, uh, we're trying to be like winger meets white lion with a little bit of poison thrown, you know, like, no, nothing like that. <laughs> but now suddenly you have roadies in gear and you don't have, you can just like kick back and, and have a drink and a smoke and, and, and then go and play, right? Yeah, it was pretty, it was, it was a pretty like eye opening different experience, you know, and I can see why people all of a sudden get like this big head. Cause like, you like, you know, so basically I, I joined the band, we finish up the record and the label in Europe was like, uh, um, favored nations or yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that. It was, it was a big label. Like they flew us over first class, you know, like I remember being like, Oh my God, like this is easy going to Europe. You just <laughs> lie back and go to sleep. This is awesome. You know, and they take us to the office. We go to John Henry's studio where we get all our gear. So I'm like picking out marshals that I want to use and backup guitars, Les Pauls and things. It's like kind of mind blowing, you, you know, did and you bring a guitar with you? Just like your main I one? Bought the, the white, I bought the white strat because okay. Mark, was the Les Paul player and I was the Strat player okay, was kind of yeah. how that band worked. Yeah. One was a Paul, one was a Strat. Um, and so we, we had our tour over there. We were over there for about a week of rehearsals. And then we started off in York in the tour. Like it was amazing because we toured all over England for I think three weeks and every show was like, I mean, Paul, it was, it was kind of crazy. Like there's points where like I'm coming off stage and people are like pulling my hair and pulling me into the crowd. And I'm like going, what is going on? Like, we're like, we show up at the hotel and there's 50 kids waiting for us. And we try to go out the back just to go shopping. And we turn around and people are like following us. And we're like this, I'm like, this is crazy. Like, so I can see why people go, Oh, I'm a rock star. I'm huge. But like, I, I knew these guys had already had one successful record and one not so successful. So they already were sort of humbled by some of it a bit, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, they were definitely egomaniacs because that's what came out of that era. But like, they were also like, you know, like they, they used to call me Greenhorn because it was my first tour, you know? Right. So they're like, okay, Greeny, you know, like don't let this rock star stuff get to you, you know? But and you've so, had two close calls, right? And I think that that's an important thing where you get two close right. calls and now you've now you get the opportunity, even though it's not a thing that you started, you get an opportunity to play music 
at a much bigger level, right, than what right, we were doing right. at that point. Yeah. I mean, we headlined and sold out the Astoria. That's where Jimi Hendrix played. That's where Oasis played. That's where, you know, Zeppelin played. Like, and I'm like backstage going, I'm like, I'm here. You know, this place is sold out. Like we come up on our tour bus and there's a line around the corner. I'm like, we've arrived. This is cool. That like, is, holy that cow. Is, that is amazing. <laughs> and not many people can, can speak to that experience. So that's, that's great. That's. I definitely feel lucky. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like as much as I wish. I had more. I, I feel truly blessed and lucky that I've had the little bit that I did have, you know? Um, so I don't know. Did you have another question? Cause I got kind of a, yeah, I just want to know how long the tour was. Oh, so the tour was two months long. Oh my God. So, really? Yeah. Yeah. And so the tour ended over in Europe. So we started out, I mean, it's all Europe, UK is where we started. So we spent like the first month and a half in UK. And I mean, we went everywhere from, Glasgow, Scotland, to Newcastle, to Glastonbury, to uh, Wales. I mean, we were all over England. It was really cool, you know, in a tour bus. And because the record actually did really well over there, it was in the top 10 of the hard rock. They were putting us up at all these nice hotels. Even in London, we stayed at like this freaking four-star hotel. And <laughs> I remember the maid saying like, Freddie Mercury stayed here, you know, a few weeks ago. And I'm like, he stayed in the room I'm in? Like, what? Like, this is crazy, you know? So the reality set in was the last three Two and a half weeks were in Europe. So we started off in France and went to Germany and then to the Netherlands. And our last show, this is this is where it all hit. It was because we had a band touring with us. It was great. They were really cool. But our very last show, not only did the bus driver get lost on the way to the show, but it was a Sunday afternoon in this small village where like Belgium, France, and Germany all kind of meet. So it's like there, it was like a village. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, like a European yeah, village. Cool. And so we pull in and they're like, who the fuck are these guys? This is like <laughs> so weird. And so, you know, our roadie set up, the opening act plays and we're on the bus. I'm not thinking about anything because every show we play, there's just been a shit ton of people, you know? I walk in to play and I look, there's nobody. Like literally nobody. And then a German shepherd comes running in and sits and we start playing. And so our joke is like the band broke up and the last show they ever played was in front of a German shepherd in Germany. So was that really the last show? <laughs> well, of the original band with me. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. So I stayed, you know, like I said, with the right. singer and bass player, I stayed with them through 99. So I still did another six years with them touring all over the States. I mean, more, tons more stories, tons more tours other record i did two more records with them after that you know there's there, there's more stories for all that right. but like as far as the original band that i was being with them and, and really feeling like the rock star moment because when you're playing with the original guys too it's like there's even more of a modicum of respect because right. it's like it's the original band and they just got this new guy you know after when it was just like joe and myself and then getting a different drummer and a different guitar player and when, when the bass player he would come in and out so it, it didn't always feel as as like as big as it did when it was the original guys right. so when i was playing with the original guys and we're playing these big places it was there was something really cool about it you know and i mean what i was going to say too is when we toured the european part of it the france germany belgium netherlands all that paul diano from iron maiden oh, yeah. was opening for us oh, and he's cool. super cool guy and it's so weird that he was opening for us so every night we'd go out and we'd hear you know him play Rathchild and all that stuff and it was like <laughs> man this is cool and he was always drinking his jack and telling us stories about fighting steve harris and um 
was, it was pretty cool stuff. So I think we'll leave it there for now because I we got a lot to get through now with sort of the ending of the original version of of Bang Tango, which I think is a is going to be is going to be pretty interesting. Uh, just maybe a closing thought from your side. You were there when um, L.A. Guns and all of those bands were happening in the late '80s in L.A. And now, what do you what do you think about the competing versions of bands now? Like, there's two Queens Rikes, or there's Queens and Jeff Tate. There's L.A. Guns, Phil Lewis, and L.A. Guns, Tracy Guns, and there's this and there's that. There's all these doubled up because everybody wants to own the name because that's where the money is. Right. So where right. you were in it. So where do you, and so I know bang tango didn't quite do that, but you were in a split. So how do you feel about like the, the competition for the value in the name? Well, actually bang tango did do that. <laughs> Joe, the singer bought the name and he kept bang tango going and the original guys wanted to get back together. So they called it bang tango redux and got a different singer and did a bunch of shows. Oh, um, but how I feel about it is that as a working musician, it's more opportunities to be in a band that has a name that's established like yeah. LA guns or, you know, the bullet boys or whatever. But, um, I think, from a fan's perspective, it's kind of disheartening because you might go thinking you're going to hear Phil Lewis sing and you show up and it's Scott Griffin singing, you know, or you think you're going to see, you know, you know, who, who great white, you know, and where's Jack Russell? How come it's this guy I've never seen before singing, you know? So I think that part is kind of, is the only part of it that's kind of funky. So, so let's end with this then. So I really, I love the first great white album. I think it's a great, great, like early metal album. It's before they did all the covers and became sort of lame, at least in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's dark and it's really cool. I think it's a great album. Um, and I think Jack Russell has a great voice. Uh, so are you a Jack Russell guy? Are you a Mark Kendall guy? Where do you come down on the great, great white controversies of <laughs> the 2000s? You know, I, uh, to me, most bands, I, I think I go with the voice, you know, singer, like okay. what's the most recognizable thing is like the singer, you know? So it's like, I would say I'm more of a, a Jack, Jack, Russell is yeah, that his Jack name? Jack Russell, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. More of a Jack Russell guy than a than a Mark Kendall guy. Mark Kendall's like yeah, he's cool. He's got his shtick, but Jack <laughs> Jack Russell's like that voice. You know, when you hear "Once Bitten, Twice Shy" or one of those, you know, I don't want to save the day or whatever. Those are like his voice is cool. It's oh, got yeah. a growl. Save the day. That's a good song. Yeah. I'm going to go listen to Save the Day now. That's a that's a good. That's idea. making me want to put it on too. Actually, <laughs> is it? It's a good tune. All right, buddy. Thanks, as always. Um, it's great to hear all these stories. I think they're interesting, and I think uh, people can can not only get behind like the, the fun and nostalgia of hearing it, but like I, you're a working musician, so there's more to it than just hearing funny stories about semi and famous people, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, exactly. As always, I'll put all the links to Mark's uh, amazing guitar playing down on the down um in the in the comments of the podcast so you can you can check him out and he does take lessons and i can vouch for my guitar playing going from 10 percent of my uh goodness to i'm probably up to 12 now after a couple of a uh, <laughs> couple of years of taking lessons from 13, mark 13. 13 yeah okay that's cool <laughs> i mean i only need about seven of it to play punk rock so it's fine there you go <laughs> all right buddy i'll talk to you soon all right thanks Paul. We'll